The following Dharma talk was given by Katie Yosha Scott Childress. Yosha is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order, a ceramics artist, and a library director here in the Hudson Valley. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or to find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. My name is Yosha. And uh, I wanted to talk about faith and bodhicitta. This is from the Mahayana Sutra Lamkara, Chapter 5, Developing the Enlightened Mind. Verse 1, Essence of the Enlightened Mind. Extremely delightful, vigorous, meaningful, and productive. The bodhisattva's mind is a mental state of intention that possesses two objectives. So the the Mahayana Sutra Lamkara, or it's also called the ornament of the Mahayana Sutras, is one of five Maitreya Sutras dating from the fourth century in India. And the Sangha I've been studying this compendium of compassion alongside the Faith Mind poem. Um, I brought, I took up this text um, as an extension of the last Ango on the 37 verses of the Bodhisattva, uh, mostly because I really want more training and explicit instruction in the role of love and compassion in Buddhist practice. Zen texts like the Faith Mind poem can seem austere and poetic, and sometimes it's it's hard to discern how those are teachings on compassion. So, This text is by Maitreya, Buddha, who uh, is a future Buddha and lives in Tushita heaven. And there's a story of how he came to write um, five sutras that come down to us. Uh, It's a sort of framing tale. uh, And it's actually, it's a good story. Um, The story starts with a Buddhist nun Uh, in India, who was so disappointed that she couldn't study and develop herself in the Dharma um, in the universities of the time or as a hermit, that she decided she would bear children who would take up her her quest. Um, And so she gave up her vows and had children by three different men, uh, and her oldest son was a Sangha. Her next son was Vasubandhu, Vasubandhu, who became a Sangha's disciple. And they're both considered the most important geniuses of Mahayana Indian Buddhism. And they're foundational to the Yogacara school. So a Sangha was eager to fulfill his mother's quest 
and decided to uh, seek the help of Maitreya, the future Buddha. So Asanga went on retreat in a cave with the intention of meeting Maitreya. But after six years of hermitage, he got discouraged and headed back to civilization. On the way, he saw a man polishing an iron rod with a wad of cotton, trying to make a needle. And he was so impressed by this effort that he headed back to the cave. (laughs) So after three more years of retreat, he again left discouraged. And on his way, he saw a man brushing a boulder with a feather. The rock was shading the man's house from the sun, so he was trying to remove it. And again, Asanga was so impressed and took this that a sign that, that he needed to be way more patient and diligent, hence the paramitas of patience, diligence. And he went back to his cave for three more years. So he's been on retreat for 12 years, and he still has no sign of accomplishment, such as an auspicious dream. So he leaves the cave totally discouraged. So this is from the introduction to um, the uh, Mahayana Sutra Lamkara. Arriving on the outskirts of a village, a sangha came across a starving dog, dragging its maggot-infested hind legs behind it. Despite the dog's attempts to bite him, Asanga was overwhelmed by compassion, and for want of anything to feed the dog, he cut a piece of flesh from his own leg for it to eat. He then turned his attention to the appalling wounds, but soon realized that all attempts to remove the maggots might save the dog but would kill the maggots. The only solution he could think of was to use his tongue to coax the maggots out of the stinking flesh. Shutting his eyes, he bent down to do what he could to heal the animal, only to find himself licking the dust by the side of the road. When he opened his eyes, he found the dog had disappeared. In its place before him stood Maitreya, His wonder at finally beholding the object of his practice, however, quickly gave way to resentment. Where have you been all this time? (laughs) Matria said, I've been with you from the beginning, but until now you were too obscure to see me. Now your compassion has cleared away your obscurations. So this story to me feels like a Zen koan. And I've been asking myself, what was a Sangha practicing in that cave that cleared away his obscurations? How does compassion clear away obscurations? What was a Sangha's state of mind when he saw that dog? What's our state of mind when we encounter other beings that we'd normally be repulsed by? A faith mind poem that says, when the mind exists 
undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. I found a tick attached to me a couple of days ago, and I coaxed it out of me. It still had a little hunk of my skin in its mouth. And before reading about a sangha, I would have killed the tick without even thinking about it. But instead, I I escorted it outside. Just these small life forms. How do we cultivate more reverence for every little thing? So after this encounter with Maitreya, he went, Asanga went with him to Tushita heaven, and that's where he imparted these sutras that are now part of the Tibetan Shadra training. The Bodhisattva's mind is a mental state of intention that, uh, that possesses two objectives. One of the main points of this um, ornament of the Mahayana Sutras is drawing a really sharp distinction between um, spiritual intent associated with solitary listeners and um, those of the Bodhisattva. So the solitary listeners would Um, want to reach various levels of enlightenment and become an arhat versus the bodhisattva who cultivates bodhicitta. Um, So as a Western Zen student, I think I came to this practice as a solitary listener. I um, was interested in relieving my own suffering. And... um, Along the way, I picked up a lot of ideas about what I thought enlightenment was and wanted to attain those various ideas. When I think about the Faith Mind poem, when you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. So this has been a struggle for me, constantly maneuvering and trying to figure out how to practice and where to apply myself. Faith Mind Poem says, Gain and loss, right and wrong, such thoughts must finally be abolished at once. Norman Fisher wrote an excellent book, um, that helps fill this this gap in compassion training for uh, Zen students, Western Zen students, called Training in Compassion, the Zen teachings on the practice of Lojong. And he says, <clears throat> Bodhicitta is a feeling of love based on the deep recognition that what we call self and what we call others are designations, concepts, habits of mind, 
not realities in the world. Real altruism isn't self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, a guilt-driven sense that we should be good, we should be nice, we should be kind. It's a profound recognition that self and other are not fundamentally different, only apparently different. So in the, suit, in the commentary to the um, ornament, to the verse that I read, it says, what then are bodhisattvas thinking of or considering in arousing bodhicitta? They are thinking of attaining great enlightenment themselves and bringing benefit and happiness to all other sentient beings. Thus, any thought that arises while focusing on enlightenment and on the welfare of all beings is what we call bodhicitta. In short, it is a commitment, the thought and aspiration, for the sake of all beings, I shall attain unsurpassable enlightenment. The Faith Mind poem, it says, in this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. To come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing is excluded. Or maybe we can say no one is excluded. The second verse of developing um, the enlightened mind is the stages of the grounds. The mind is developed on the grounds through inspiration, pure intent, and maturation. Likewise, there is the elimination of obscurations. Bodhicitta is categorized here on successive levels. Um, This Indian Buddhism stuff is is very um, systematized and very elaborate in its explanations. So if you're longing for um, detail and explanation, I would turn to one of these texts. So levels one through seven of this, uh, of bodhicitta, uh, are superior intention, realizing that oneself and others are the same, unconditioned, by subject-object duality. Levels eight through 10 are fully matured bodhicitta, which is spontaneous and non-conceptual. And then level 11 is the level of Buddhahood, free of all obscurations concerning the 11 levels. The first levels are attained through practicing the paramitas or transcendent perfections. So to practice the Dharma requires patience and diligence. As the Sangha realized when he saw the man attempting to remove the boulder with the feather. There's also the paramita of transcendent generosity or dana paramita which we saw when Asanga cut a piece of his leg for the dog to eat. 
giving is a medicine for self-clinging or neediness. So when we notice that we're needing something, we're needing love, we're needing comfort, we're needing attention from others, we can apply the mind of giving and just ask, what can I give right now? Filling our mind with this intention of giving can derail the self-centered thoughts, turn our our focus outward toward the world. Pema Chodron wrote in Becoming Bodhisattvas, until we work with the mind, the paramitas can't really liberate us. This is because the paramitas and letting go of self-clinging are the same. So it is with all of our actions. They either undercut our attachments or strengthen them. They bring us into the present or distract us. I got to attend a memorial for my friend Anita Wetzel last weekend. And um, the thing that really stood out as people were telling stories of this person who was an artist and um, just an overall lovely person uh, was this quality she had of being able to really be with people and uh, make them feel seen and special just being able to give her attention. And when all is said and done, that just that, that small thing adds up to a life and, and what we leave behind. Um, it's, it's really... It's so simple in a way, but it can be the most difficult thing to do when we're really caught up in our self-centered lather of whatever it is we're caught up in, which we're often, and I'll speak for myself, often distracted, in a hurry, entangled, with emotions and not able to access that moment of just giving, giving to whoever and whatever is right in front of us. I read in the New York Times that many of the people who participated in the um, January 6th insurrection had apocalyptic visions. They were following their leader who gave voice to all their insecurities, as Gokhan, sorry, as Gikan mentioned. And don't we all get on the apocalypse train sometimes? 
and know with certainty that everything is really going to hell, for sure, this time. We just can get so lost in self-doubt. Everything seems dark, heavy. We just can't see our way out of it. And again, coming from this place of needing, not these needs not being met, and it can turn into this, this huge, this huge project. To live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult, but those with limited views are fearful and irresolute. The faster they hurry, the slower they go, and clinging cannot be limited. So when we turn our mind towards these paramitas, we start taking the antidote to this sickness of fear and irresolution. The mind is developed on the grounds through inspiration, pure superior intent and maturation. Likewise, there is the elimination of obscurations. So Maitreya said to Asanga, I've been here all along, but until now you were too obscured to see me. Now your compassion has cleared away your obscurations. When we think of enlightenment, we sometimes think about transformation, as if we're going to go from being defiled to something pure, something better. But what this is pointing to is that our practice is actually about removing obscurations. In other words, what we're seeking, we already have, but we can't see it. Faith Mind Poem says, when thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear. And the Sutra Lankara commentary says, great compassion that wishes for all sentient beings to achieve the transcendence of suffering constitutes the accumulation of merit. Insight that realizes emptiness the understanding that ultimately there is nothing that needs to transcend suffering is the accumulation of wakefulness. The nature of the developed, sorry, the nature of the development of the enlightened mind consists of these two accumulations. So self-clinging accumulates into these habitual ways of our being and the way that we 
identify ourselves in the world. And I think this is pointing to practicing these paramitas as watering the seeds of wakefulness and compassion. It's something we can do. It reminds me of the, uh, the metaphor of waves and water. At first, we're only concerned about ourselves, our friends and our family, maybe. Just one wave. And then maybe we notice that there are other waves, and they also care about themselves and their own families. There's actually a whole huge ocean of waves. But actually, we're only water. So even saving someone is an illusion. For the unified mind in accord with the way, all self-centered striving ceases. Doubts and irresolutions vanish, and life in true faith is possible. May we have the faith in our ability to brush away the boulder of self-centered striving with the feather of awareness and pure intent. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.